0: Well, a happy mega morning uh, to all of you, and uh, blessed Saturday. Uh, My prayer is that uh, today will be a a day that you will experience uh, the beauty, the grace, and the blessings of our Lord. Um, Today, I am going to uh, take a different direction in terms of uh, um, the themes that I usually focus on, and in fact, this is a new theme that slowly and gradually I'm going to venture into, and that's the theme of politics. But I'm not going to ta- today to talk about our politics. Obviously, anything I'm going to share will be based on either a theological view or a biblical view. So today's topic actually deal with political Islam, not the biblical politics I don't want to share about, which I will do that at a later time. And specifically, the one I want to focus on has to do with the tension between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That's the specific tension. But also the tension that Iran is raising and causing between Iran and the international community. Now, in order for me to help you understand, at least, why in the world... Is Iran hung up on creating actually a war? Uh, you can see by their actions. You know, just uh, this week, this uh, supposed drone and uh, cruise missile attacks that uh, knocked down almost 50 percent of the oil production in uh, one of the largest oil producers in the world. That's Saudi Arabia. I uh, my former, uh, basically, uh, country where I was raised, uh, born and raised. And at the same time, uh, it seems like, you know, uh, on the surface, people will say, man, that, that's foolish. I mean, why do you want to do something like this? Why do you want to create an atmosphere uh, for war? And, you know, that, these are good questions to ask, obviously. Anyone uh, should be asking these kind of questions, because simply your uh, number one question is, What is Iran gaining out of this? I mean, obviously, you always wonder uh, why would people fight in the first place, and in this case, nations, and what would one nation gain out of this battle? Now, let me take you back, of course, to the year 632 A.D. Yes, I know none of us was there, and I know uh, there is no Facebook post Basically, that were posted back then, or tweet accounts uh, that were launched at that time, uh, with any um, you know, tweet news. There was no headline news at that time, but let me tell you what's going on at that time. There was this prophet of Islam, the messenger of the Quran, Muhammad, who served basically in the Arabian Peninsula for 23 years as a prophet. He claimed that he has received revelations in a cave from an angel that was supposedly sent to him by his God. And that was in the year 610 A.D. And then he spent 13 years spreading a message. He called Islam and then moved from Mecca where he spent the 13 years to another town north where he's buried right now or supposedly or allegedly is buried right now in Medina For the next 10 years, so you have 13 years in Mecca, you have 10 years in Medina, that's the 23 years. In the year 632 AD, he died, and the theory is that he died from complications of being poisoned by a Jewish uh, lady whom he assassinated her husband, brothers, father, family, and uh, uh, technically speaking, annihilated her tribe, and therefore... Uh, And took her as a hostage, and she ended up basically poisoning his meal. And it took about uh, three to four months, according to the Sunni traditions, uh, for Muhammad to suffer the complications of the poison, even though Sunnis will deny that he died as a result of that poison. Nevertheless, I mean, uh, um, uh, regardless of all of that, I'm just telling you. The, if you want to understand the tension between Iran and Saudi, we literally have to go all the way back to the year 632 after the death of Muhammad. You see, Muhammad is an Arab and comes from Arab tribe, the tribe of Quraysh, of course, but in the Arabian Peninsula and even outside of the Arabian Peninsula, like in Jordan and Iraq, for instance, even uh, uh, parts of the Sinai Peninsula and other parts, of course, in Uh, modern-day Sudan, you know, in Yemen and the South and other uh, parts of the, uh, uh, the, you know, the Middle East, the idea of uh, tribal um, hierarchy is important. What happens is usually when the head of the tribe, and in this case Mohammed would have been the political leader of that tribe, died, then someone from his own tribe or someone from his own immediate family, first a son, and then maybe a brother, and if not maybe a cousin, will assume the role of the leadership known as the caliphate, meaning a caliph basically is the successor, and usually it should be from the bloodline. Now, the family of Muhammad, uh, you know, Muhammad didn't have any sons or at least any surviving sons. Uh, There is uh, this also tradition that he had at least two, some will say three, Sons, all of whom died at a very young age, like in, in the first maybe uh, year or two. And uh, therefore, Muhammad did not have a male uh, successor to um, uh, basically assume his role. Now, it's left, of course, to the family to decide who is next in line. And the, the perfect candidate was uh, his cousin Ali. Now, Ali, known as Ali ibn Abu Talib, is literally Muhammad's cousin. And he is also Muhammad's son-in-law because he married Muhammad's only surviving daughter, Fatima. Muhammad had four daughters. Three of them passed away by the time he died. Only one of them survived. And uh, by the time he died, her name is Fatima. And uh, uh, they thought that Ali is the perfect candidate since he is a blood relative. He is close to Muhammad in terms of relationship, marital relationship. But also on top of this, when Muhammad was eight years of age, uh, both his mother... His father died when he was still in the womb of his mom, okay? Uh, He died, so he was born orphan already. His mother died when he was six years old. Then his grandfather assumed that uh, role of raising him. Then his grandfather died when he was eight. And then at age eight, the father of Ali, meaning the uncle of Muhammad, Abu Talib, is the one that assumed raising him until Abu Talib passed away um, you know, in a year um, uh, 600 and uh, around 620, 621, give or take. All that to say that uh, it would have been natural uh, to have Ali become that successor. However, the family of Muhammad was minority. They didn't have a whole lot of support from outside. And the companions of Muhammad were many. And they can see uh, that a position like this is so powerful, politically speaking. And they ended up voting one of their own, meaning the companions chose one of their own. That's Abu Bakr, who happened to be also related to Muhammad by marriage. Because Muhammad, believe it or not, happens to be the husband of uh, Abu Bakr's young daughter, who was six years old when Muhammad uh, basically proposed to marry her. Muhammad was 51 years of age. Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr, was six years old and then Muhammad was 54 years old and she was nine when they consummated that marriage. So they're related to each other and also Abu Bakr was so close friend to Muhammad. He was among the first to believe in Muhammad. He was wealthy and supported Muhammad, of course, in a variety of ways and provided protection for him and so on and so forth. So they chose Abu Bakr and tension came into the scene between the relatives of Muhammad known as Ahlul Bayt, meaning the family of Muhammad, or the household of Muhammad, and the companions of Sahaba, okay, the Arabic word for it. And that tension in 632 AD is what we call today the tension between the Shia, because the companions of Muhammad, uh, the, the relatives of Muhammad, or Ahlul Bayt, or the household of Muhammad, is what we call later the Shia, and then the companions is what we call later the Sunnis. So there you have it. That's the beginning of that division. It took almost 20-plus years and three other caliphs between Abu Bakr and then Omar and finally Uthman before Ali, the cousin of Muhammad, became the fourth successor to Muhammad, the fourth caliph during an era known as the Righteous Caliphate. And that was basically uh, the first time when Ali, according to the Shia uh, you know, theology, became the true righteous successor of Muhammad. They will tell you uh, that the first three were thieves. They stole the caliphate and uh, political leadership from them. And therefore, uh, you know, Abu Bakr died nationally, but Omar and also Uthman were assassinated. So they will say they got what they deserved. And Ali, sadly, ended up being assassinated as well. So, there you have the political background behind why we end up with a theological background. Shia, from a theological standpoint, also believe that Ali is the first imam, and especially when you talk about the Twelvers, that's the predominant theological view in Iran. The Twelvers is named after the twelve imams, plural, out of which comes the 12th Imam, the awaited one. And Ali is the first Imam. His oldest son, uh, I mean, his uh, one of his sons, uh, um, Hassan, uh, the oldest, basically was the second Imam. Both of them were assassinated, by the way. And then came the third son, the young one, Hussein was assassinated. And Hussein is a big deal, by the way, for the Shia community. They they pray to him. They believe that he is interceding between them and God, uh, just like, uh, you know, the other imams, but he is a big deal, and they believe that they need to celebrate, uh, basically, his life, they celebrate his his death. Uh, there is 10 days at the beginning of the Islamic calendar in Muharram, the first month known as, uh, you know, holy or sacred days, where some, in some parts of the Shia world, they uh, Shia will march and they f- uh, flog themselves with chains and uh, with uh, you know pieces of metal to bleed themselves to shed their own blood for forgiveness of sin and so on and so forth. I mean uh, we, we can we can get into these details at a later time. Today just a background. So uh, if Ali is the first Imam, his oldest son the second, his youngest son the third, and then it started to go through the lineage. We get to the twelfth Imam, who supposedly uh, was raptured uh, in uh, towards the end, uh, base, uh, around the you know ninth, tenth century. Was raptured, remains alive, and he is basically waiting for the right moment to come back. His reappearance, uh, you know, basically kicks in motion the end times from the Shia standpoint. Now. From a Shia theological standpoint, the 12th Imam will not appear until there is a rising tension and a war or battles that will prompt him to come into the scene to fight the Armageddon battle once and for all, and he will have a prophet with him. Who do you think that prophet? You guessed it, our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's like taking some of the character's and some of the metaphors and uh, symbols of the book of Revelation and reshuffling them, basically. Uh, So the 12th Imam is a big deal. And as a result of this, everything that Iran is doing since the Iranian revolution in 1979 until today had to do with creating a political position in the world that will provide Iran with world domination, starting with the region first and moving forward. And if that means creating a war zone, or at least engaging in war and hostility against the West or the enemies of the Shia version of Islam, then that will kick in motion in times and that will bring that 12th Imam, the awaited one. Okay? One of the, I mean, the previous president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, literally built a mosque for him, built a runway to await for his return, because according to their theology, he will come in, and he will be basically leading prayer, and Jesus will be praying also alongside of him. Nevertheless, one of the things that also are crucial for us to understand is that he's believed to be alive, and they believe he's alive, and somewhere in a in a uh, in a well or, or a cave, and they, they sometimes go and try to speak to him. So, that's why uh, you'll see in this emphasis on the 12th Imam from a theological standpoint. Now, let's take a look at the Sunni side of things. Saudi Arabia is, is considered to be the head of the Sunni branch of Islam. They're representatives of that, obviously, simply because Islam uh, came out of Saudi Arabia. Back then, it wasn't called Saudi. It's uh, just the Arabian Peninsula came out of Mecca, which belongs to Saudi today, and uh, uh, the, the, the Sunni branch of Islam also became predominant in there and spread all over the world, although the Shia branch of Islam also is no small, uh, you know, faction. However, it's hev- heavily concentrated in Iran. Let's think about this. From a world population standpoint, We have the estimate of about 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, about 25% of the world population. Out of the 1.6 billion, one can argue that about 85 to 88% of them can claim to be Sunnis, regardless of the fact that there are so many branches under the sub branches under Sunni uh, itself. So to say Sunni doesn't mean anything. You have to really be clear what branch of Sunni Islam are you? And then there's about 8% in the world who are. Shia. However, when you try to look at it from a regional standpoint, there is high concentration of Shia in the Middle East. Iran has about 95% of its uh, basically citizens uh, are Shia and most of them follow the Twelvers view. Uh, although not all Iranians are on board with what the government is doing, but at least on paper that's what we're dealing with. And then you have more than half of Iraq is Shia and sympathetic to Iran. You have the, uh, uh, you know, the political regime in Syria, uh, you know, led by uh, Bashar Assad, are sympathetic to Iran, even though they're minority, and the majority over there are Sunnis. And then you have Hezbollah, who also is um, a, a proxy arm for Iran in Lebanon, where Lebanon has also a large population of Shia. Hezbollah. Is kind of like the militant arm for Iran that is designed to antagonize the region and specifically antagonize Israel from the north. And then, Iran recently went on to uh, establish also presence in Yemen, and that what uh, that's the reason why the war in Yemen um, uh, took basically or launched between Saudi and its allies against. The Yemeni Houthis, who are Shia, uh, supported by Iran back in 2014, and we're still dealing with that. And many people have suffered and died, and famine uh, is uh, striking over there. And there are so many other casualties that we don't hear about. Nevertheless, uh, that explains why there is that tension that is taking place. But also, you need to understand that the eastern province of Saudi is heavily concentrated with also Shia. Saudis, who are sympathetic to Iran as well, they've always been persecuted by the Sunni regime. They've always been deprived of many rights. They've always been ignored and neglected. And therefore, it was Iran's perfect chance to try to uh, play uh, the card of sympathy and uh, try to utilize them to their advantage. And there have been some riots that took place. Uh, there is a, a uh, area over there called Awamiya that the Saudi government have been um, basically uh, putting an embargo against it and even bombarding him sometimes and uh, bulldozing some uh, properties and uh, arresting many people and uh, doing a lot of national security uh, operations over there to kill operatives and so on and so forth. So you can see that there is a lot of political tension in the region. But Iran had its tentacles now uh, spread north through uh, modern-day Iraq and Syria all the way into Lebanon via Hezbollah and now south uh, through, Ira- uh, through uh, Yemen and the Houthis who are at the northern si- uh, border of Yemen which mean they are able now to launch attacks at the southern borders of Saudi Arabia and they've been claiming also that they've been launching some drone attacks from there all the way to the eastern province of Saudi something I highly doubt that they have such sophisticated technology that will allow drones that can fly for hours uh, from Yemen all the way to the Eastern province. I mean, if you're flying in an airplane, it can take at least three to four hours from Yemen to get to the Eastern province. So that tells me that Iran is behind all of these attacks. And uh, only if the attacks were at the southern border of Saudi, I can believe that the uh, Houthis will have uh, drones that can fly such a short distance. Nevertheless, that's what's going on. You have a theological underpinning that is causing theological tension between two of the heads of the predominant Islamic branches, the Shia and the Sunnis. They both clash theologically. The Sunnis consider the Shia to be apostates and heretics, and the Shia consider the Sunnis apostates and heretics. They hate each other's guts. They do not like each other. They feel fighting each other is justified theologically. Killing one another is justified theologically. Iran is capitalizing on the Shia presence in the eastern province of Saudi, where the oil industry is, to their advantage. The Saudis, of course, are keeping a close eye on what's going on over there and making many arrests and attacks and so many other things uh, against their own citizen out of fear of reprisal. Iran is also spreading its influence south, and that prompted the Saudis and their allies, the Arab allies, to start bombardment campaign uh, against the Houthis in Yemen, destroying literally uh, most of the country. All that to say is, unless we understand that theology, we will be oblivious to why Iran is taking such bold moves by even attacking, as recently as this week, one of the largest oil fields and oil refineries in Saudi, that is even a nerve center for the world, actually, and doing so with anticipation that they're hoping a war will soon, uh, basically, uh, take place on that stage. No wonder they've been also... Uh, seizing tankers. No wonder they've been antagonizing ships uh, in the uh, Strait of Hormuz. They're doing all of this. They're no dummies, by the way. Some people might think like, oh, their leadership is all crazy. They're, uh, you know, they're going out of their mind. No, they're theologically driven. Just like ISIS was a Sunni branch, theologically driven to reestablish the lost caliphate and doing many dumb things, because from our perspective, from their perspective, they're smart moves, because they felt like they are also bringing about the end times, where only a handful of Sunnis will reestablish the caliphate, and they will be fought by the world. And as a result of that, of course, ISIS was being bumped up whenever the Allies were bombarding him, because they felt that was a fulfillment of these prophecies. That was my background. Next episode, I'll dig deeper into more of this. So hopefully you'll find this enjoyable. As always, go and subscribe to our website, uh, our uh, YouTube channel, CIRA International, and visit our website, cirainternational.com. International.com, again, C as in Charlie, C-I-R-A. We encourage you to support us, uh, to become a Patreon patron. Go and click on that on the YouTube channel, become a patron, give as little as $1, and as much as the Lord can put on your heart, you can even give through PayPal. We have that ability right now on our YouTube channel as well. You can also sub- uh, subscribe and become a member on our website and have access to all of our unpublished videos. You can visit SierraInternational.com to learn more. Thank you, and God bless.